You're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Our topic today centers on a cryptic arrangement of four letters and numbers, together which identify a virus that has fixated the medical community and terrified the general public. It is H5N1, commonly known as avian influenza or bird flu. Endemic to this animal population, H5N1's impact on humans has thus far been confined to those having extensive contact with infected birds, but the constant threat of mutating into a viral strain capable of transmitting effectively between humans has led to the phenomenon of mass fear in which another pandemic seems only a heartbeat away. Joining me to talk about avian influenza today is Dr. Stephen Gordon, chairman of the Department of Infectious Diseases at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Gordon, welcome. Well, welcome. Dr. Gordon, let's start with some of the basics. Tell us about the general relationship between type A influenza viruses and the avian influenza virus, or H5N1. The influenza viruses are really subtype based upon the surface glycoproteins. And when we talk about influenza A viruses, these are the viruses that are all, all the pandemic strains have been influenza A viruses. And the subtype on the surface glycoproteins relate to the combinations of the 16 hemagglutinins versus the 9 neuraminidases, essentially a lot of combinations. And because it's an RNA virus, segmented RNA genome, there's a lot of mutations that occur. And that is why every year we need to get a different flu vaccine And the changes that occur can either be shift or drift, as they are kind of classified. And antigenic shift is really associated with the emergence of novel influenza A subtypes. And these are the ones that are generally a recombination event. And this really is things that we, a lot of humans, might not have seen before and therefore can be associated with either more virulence or potentially more pathogenicity because of the fact we wouldn't have pre-existing antibodies. Drift is much more common in terms of changes, and those are just really basically uncorrected errors in the RNA replication, the mutations. And the current predominant strain we have is the H3N2. And again, it's felt that immunity to the older strains decreases as strains do drift further. And the individual's repeated susceptibility over the lifetime is really our basis for updating the vaccine strains. So H5N1 is a virus that's been identified for some time, but is now being recognized because of its potential lethality in humans. I think, you know, when we look at the ecology of influenza viruses, I think at least the important thing to recognize is that influenza really is a zoonosis. That is, it is something that has emerged from animals and then infected humans. And generally, how that works is bird flu, which H5N1 is, it's highly pathogenic for birds. That's when we talk about highly pathogenic When that term is used for H5N1, it's referring to what it does to birds. And as we've all recognized, it's killed millions and millions of birds. And today it has killed relatively few humans. That's still a relatively unusual event. And generally speaking, influenza A viruses will then circulate from birds into other intermediate or different hosts than humans, such as pigs, where there might be some reassortment and then potentially transferred to humans, where sometimes we can see direct spread from birds to humans, that is a direct avian influenza, that has in the past been associated with pandemic. And we know from the recent studies from Arms Force Institute of Pathology that the 1918 pandemic strain was indeed a bird flu strain, uh, presumably that went from, again, birds directly to humans. Now, from what I understand, H5N1 has infected humans since 1997, with a total of about 150 deaths, most of which were in Southeast Asia. 
What is especially troubling about this virus and its clinical recognition? You raise the questions is that at least the first recognized transmission of this H5N1 to humans was recognized in Hong Kong in 1997. And again, at that point, which, you know, to go back, I think there was a cluster of around a dozen, and a decision was made for a big call at that time. And if you've been in that area, obviously, there's a lot of contact between humans and a lot of contact between poultry. Uh, now, whether or not that <laughs> prevented a pandemic or more spread, I, I think it's still up for speculation in that regard. But that was the first recognized H5N1 in terms of that particular avian influenza to humans. Now, there have been others that have occurred since then or that have been recognized aside from H5N1. There was an H9N2 in Hong Kong. There's an H7N7 in the Netherlands that caused more problems with conjunctivitis. And again, in Canada, the H7N3. So the H5N1 has not been the only avian virus since 1997 known to have been transmitted to humans. The issue is, is, is clearly it has been identified with the most deaths, although that's been, as you stated, still relatively few cases. I think to date, if you go on the website, you're up to maybe 130 proven or documented cases of H5N1 in humans with about a 50% mortality rate. However, as we have seen, it is extremely lethal for many bird types, although, again, you still have birds that are not going to be killed by the virus and therefore can be effective spreaders of that, especially wildlife-type birds that migrate. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. This is Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Gordon, chairman of the Department of Infectious Diseases at the Cleveland Clinic. Our subject today is the avian flu. So is this mainly dependent on the susceptibility of the host? And just to add to that question, what other factors do you take into account here? I think this is obviously a a huge area of interest in study. And if you look at what the H5N1 does to birds, as opposed to the typical human influenza virus, which we think of an upper tract, respiratory tract infection, you know, nasopharyngeal, um, and obviously can lead to morbidity, especially with secondary bacterial infections. If you look at the necropsies of the birds, it's a systemic infection. So you get extra pulmonary involvement, uh, including tissue and brain and other viscera outside the lungs. Now, obviously, the experience in humans to date has been relatively small. Not all these cases have been autopsied, but there have been several potential interesting clues in terms of the pathogenicity. And one is, of course, is it looks as though the receptors, as opposed to going to the upper respiratory tract, are deeper in the lung. So we're talking in the alveolar area, and obviously that is potentially associated with a more severe infection when that can occur. It also might have implications with detection in terms of nasopharyngeal swabs, which would still be the usual way for surveillance. Most people are not going to get bronchoscopy as surveillance. And again, with the molecular assays that are being done in terms of looking for what makes this potentially more virulent, all of virulence factors for the H5N1, that's an area of very active research that's going on right now. Are there suggestions here that subtypes of H5N1 exist? You know, there are what we'd say different clades that have been looked at. For instance, when you look at most of the cases that occur, say, in the Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, have been identified as the blue clade one versus those in Iraq, Egypt, have been the red clade. So I think what you might imply is that, you know, again, being an RNA virus and everything else, is that it is probably, as it evolves, is not going to be necessarily a homogeneous virus as it continues to evolve. And already we've seen two different clades emerge. We talked about some of the general biological and epidemiological aspects of H5N1 influenza virus. Let's turn now to clinical features and health policy challenges. To start, what planning steps would you say are most necessary at this point to avoid a pandemic? Well, I think the big piece that has been missing thus far in terms of turning this H5N1 into a pandemic has been obviously 
the lack of what we call sustained person-to-person transmission. That is to state that we've seen clusters, or at least what we believe, at least most of the research has suggested, that clusters within some families or close family contacts where you might have had more than one person get H5N1, but we have not yet seen it spread outside of a close family cluster. And it's not to say that that couldn't happen, but whether it will or will not, I think, is potentially anyone's guess on, on where you fall on that. I cannot tell you what will be the necessary mutation that would allow the virus to do that, but it's safe to say, obviously, that if it did have that capability to spread, even like influenza does in humans by droplet, that with the incubation period of less than two days and with, we believe, the average number of secondary cases for regular human influenza being about two cases for every infected case, and given we're in this global world where you can be on a plane in Thailand one day and in any place else in the world in a few hours, is that there's no question that you would have a problem on one's hands. Now, having said that, I think that we're a little bit further along in preparedness than we were six months ago. And one example I would say is the most recent cluster that occurred in Sumatra, Indonesia in April. And within four to five weeks, actually, that cluster was identified, sequenced, quarantine measures were put in place. And what I would say is, is that that's a good sign to say that there is much more surveillance going on worldwide for this in humans as well as in uh, bird populations. And I think that is going to be very, very necessary for what we call a containment strategy. The earlier we know that there might be possible sustained person-to-person spread, the more likely we would be able to contain it. That is with potentially quarantine, potentially giving vaccine and or antivirals in that geographic area before, quote-unquote, we got on global spread. So in addition to keeping a high index of suspicion and asking the right epidemiologic questions, What else would you recommend we do to mitigate a widespread infection? This is really now where the discussion is going, because if you roll out the doomsday scenario where you have a pandemic, and we know, quite frankly, I think uh, everyone concedes that we can't close our borders. That's not, I mean, we we can't close our borders today, and we certainly won't be able to close our borders, even if we knew there was widespread disease, say, in the Far East. We also know that we only have a certain amount of antivirals. That is, there's probably about 20 million doses of Tamiflu, which certainly uh, is not going to be enough for everybody for primary prophylaxis or treatment. We also know that our H5N1 vaccine supply, that is pre-pandemic, is also maybe close to maybe a million doses at the moment, and that might not even be the pandemic strain. So what we do know is that if there was a pandemic that occurred in the next six months, we could not count on vaccine and antivirals enough for everybody to control the pandemic. And therefore, people are looking at other strategies, the so-called non-pharmacologic interventions to mitigate. And again, the word mitigate, as you know, means to reduce morbidity and mortality. And this has been a very interesting discussion for me because there's been a lot of modeling studies that have come out looking at what we'd call networks and looking at contacts and recognizing in this modeling based upon, again, who contacts who during the day. And there's three areas where that have been identified where there's going to be a lot of contact. One would be schools, obviously with school children. One would be the workplace. And the next would be a household. Therefore, if you go along those lines is one way to decrease contact would be to close schools. You know, that would be one avenue. But then when you think about that, as people are beginning to think about, it's one thing to close schools for a school day, one or two days. But if you have a first wave of a pandemic that might last for weeks, that's a lot of time where the kids are going to be not in school, and where are they going to be? This is some interesting data just looking at what do our households look like, how many single-parent households we have, how many kids are less than 12 years old, who takes care of our kids. 
And as you can imagine, it is not clear that how you would keep all these kids occupied, and would they still go out and congregate in malls or other places? So this is becoming a very interesting discussion in terms of is school closure something that is even practical? In the modeling, it certainly works, but the modeling doesn't take into account is what are you going to do with these, with these children? Now, at the workplace, obviously, a lot of workplaces have come up with commuting at home or using, you know, Blackberries or Internet or things of that nature in plans in that regard, which might be a little bit easier to entertain. And then the household is another story. What happens in a household? That is, what contains a household? How are you going to keep people entertained? And, and are they going to be able to go out to buy groceries or food? Humans tend to be pretty social animals as well. And, and what are the adverse effects of what we'd say voluntary quarantine, or even if it came to that isolation. So it becomes very interesting, I think, in terms of, you know, can you model human behavior? Well, I want to thank Dr. Stephen Gordon, chairman of the Department of Infectious Diseases at the Cleveland Clinic, for sharing his insights on the avian influenza virus, or H5N1, with us. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at breachmd.com. Thanks for listening.